asked me, oh, several times, and I said, oh, I'll pray about it, I'll pray about it. <laughs> you know how that goes. But I knew that I was going to anyway because the Lord had been dealing with me for over a year about a certain scripture. And I, I thought, Lord, why are you showing me this? And then I had talked with one of the sisters, and she said, I wish we could have a Bible study. And the Lord spoke to me right then and said, this is where you're supposed to give it. <laughs> so it was the second chapter of John, but I said at the class, I said, in order to understand this, we're going to have to go back and start in the very first chapter of John. So that's where we started. Uh, I think it's been about, we've had about six classes, and we're still in the first chapter of John. <laughs> so if that tells you anything, you might as well sit back and be comfortable because I have 13 pages of notes. <laughs> um, just, just pray that God will help us, and I do want to start with a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for your love, dear God. We pray, to Lord, that you will anoint our lips this night, give our heart the message that you have laid upon us, dear Father, and we pray, dear Jesus, that you will just have, prepare the hearts, dear Lord, and let them receive what you have for them this night. Give us, Lord, the ability, calm our nerves, dear God, and we pray that your holy presence, your Holy Spirit will have its way in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask Justin, I'm already dry from the nerves, you know how that goes. I'm going to ask Justin to read the scriptures uh, for me. Uh, and what I've titled this is something probably unusual. Seem a little strange to you, but it's dip in, draw out, and bear. And I think you'll understand it as we go along, but... It's, we're talking about living under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Living in such a way that our everyday actions are what God wants us to do. The Spirit's leading because if we do that, we're going to have positive results and God will bless us in many, many ways. So I would like to look at the scripture passage that is very familiar to all of us. John 2 1 through 11. I'm going to have Justin to just go ahead and read it, and then we're going to go back and kind of study the scripture together. John 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciple, disciples believed in him. I truly believe that every scripture is the inspired word of God in the Bible. And I do believe that many times we can look over a scripture and miss something that God has for us. And 
Then we go back and look at it again, and we see something that just really thrills our heart. And to me, that's what's so precious about the Word of God. But there was something always in this scripture that puzzled me. It was always um, the sixth verse of that chapter, and we will get into it. But first of all, in this first miracle Jesus performed shortly after his baptism, I wanted to go back and look in the Old Testament where the reference scriptures had taken me, uh, where God had performed many, many miracles to prove that he is the one true and living God. And each miracle performed had a message or a lesson for the people, something for them to learn, to take admonition. God was Israel's savior out of the hand of the oppressor. And these miracles were not magic tricks like the uh, Pharaoh's wise men performed on the first couple plagues. But a miracle is a surprising, welcome event that is explicable by natural, is not explicable by natural or scientific laws, and therefore is considered to be the work of a divine agency, which we know is God. In Exodus 4.9, the Old Testament dispensation, looking at the plagues of Egypt, we see the curse of the law turn the water into blood, signifying terror, bitterness, and burdens upon the Egyptians. The law brought awareness of sin and was limited in what it could do. But in John 1.17, we read, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Thank God. Isn't that wonderful? In the New Gospel dispensation, we see where Jesus turned the water into wine, which shows us the difference between the law of Moses and the Gospel of Christ. The Gospel call is, like in Isaiah 55 says, Come ye to the water and buy wine and milk without money. And keep in mind the scripture that he read. The shadows of the Mosaic law were as water. They were weak, beggarly elements that could never purge the conscience of man or make perfect, as it tells us in Hebrew 1. Nor could it fulfill that indwelling of the Spirit of God, the power to live over sin, above sin. Galatians 3.17 tells us Christ has redeemed us from what? The curse of the law. In Peter's sermon in Acts 2.22, he says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God, among you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you. In this first miracle, Jesus was not only confirming his power over the natural elements, but he was confirming that he was and is the Son of God. And he was given a sign, I believe, for what great purpose he came for. In the first chapter of John, when John had baptized Jesus, the Spirit of God had descended upon him in the form of a dove, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The old law to be abolished and done away with, now a new dispensation, the gospel days. A new, a better way, the best for the last. While it may seem insignificant to some, to me this is a crucial symbolism in this first miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine. Wine is a token of the New Testament, a new covenant. And looking back at the very beginning, when Adam and Eve had sinned, man lost two things. What were they? The beautiful kingdom they were living in and driven from, the Garden of Eden, and the most important thing, the communion and relationship they had with God. The Spirit of God communing with man in the cool of the evening. But in the new dispensation, the gospel age, Jesus came for that restoration, once again to have communion in the heart of men and women. Because of man's sin, the Jews had many years of ceremonial cleansings and sacrifices. 
all types and shadows, symbolizing and pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, that pure and holy Lamb Jesus that would set up his kingdom in the hearts of men and women once again and become the Lord of their life. Not just for the Jews like it was in the Old Testament, the old days, but now for the Jews and the Gentiles. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 62, 2, we read, And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all the kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which is the mouth of the Lord, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of, the God, of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah, which is a symbolic name for Zion, meaning my delight is in her, and thy land, Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee, and as a bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. In Matthew 22 and 2, Jesus liked the kingdom of heaven to what? A marriage feast, which says, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. So where do we find Jesus after his baptism in this new gospel age? At a marriage feast, performing his very first miracle. About to reveal to his disciples and the world who he was, and the purpose that he came for. The first miracle, I believe, is a prelude to the great gospel that Jesus came preaching and has the beautiful hidden message of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God that Jesus came to establish within the hearts of men and women, his holy temple, changing that earthen vessel through the purification of his blood, to a vessel of honor. Miracles were designed for the sacred and solemn seals of his doctrine. And we see in the scripture that Jesus never performed a miracle until he began to preach the gospel and the doctrine of his, the gospel of Christ. Luke 16, 16 says, The law and the prophets were until John, until John the Baptist. But since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. So let's look at this first miracle, not just as an event where man's appetite for wine was fulfilled, which may seem like a frivolous thing for a first miracle, for we know the greatest miracle in one's life is when the old man is crucified and we let the Holy Spirit within our soul. Every one of us is born with that longing after righteousness, a thirst of having one relationship with God and join in marriage to the Creator. So Justin, I'll have you start reading John 2 and 1. Just read the first verse, please. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. What do you think of when you hear the third day? Anybody? The resurrection. Uh, I know in the first chapter of John, it talks about Jesus did this, and then the next day he did this, and then the next day, and then it says the third day. So I don't know whether it's talking about that as the third day, uh, some of the commentaries said maybe it was the third day of the wedding. We don't know. But when we think of the third day, we think, first of all, of Jesus raising from the dead. And that is a great study in itself because the, res uh, the third day is mentioned 130 times in the King James Bible, and it's a great study. But my mind is drawn to the resurrection day at that time. When Jesus was resurrected, 
showing his power over sin, death, and the grave, and his kingdom being set up. The third day there was a marriage. What better place for Jesus to perform his first miracle? We just read where he likened the kingdom of heaven to a king making a marriage for his son. At this wedding, the mother of Jesus was there. This must have been a marriage of some relative of Mary, for Christ was invited and his disciples into the social gathering there. And then the second verse, Justin. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. There were only five disciples at this time. And one of the disciples was named Nathaniel, which we read about in the first chapter of John. In Nathaniel, God, or Jesus had spoken to him, and Nathaniel says, how did you know me? Because Jesus said, an Israelite indeed, with no guile. And Nathaniel said, how did you know me? And Jesus said, I saw you underneath that fig tree. And he was amazed, and he said, surely you are the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you're going to see greater things than this. And so here we are in the second chapter, read of the great things that were to follow. The gospel age, a new dispensation, the ultimate sacrifice, of the Lamb of God was about to take place. The veil in the temple was going to be rent. The door opened for the Gentiles as well as the Jews to receive the adoption of the Father and have their sins forgiven and forgotten and his spirit dwelling within them. What great things they were to see. The resurrection. The law was written, going to be written in their hearts now instead of on a tablet of stone. And beautiful promises for the children of God. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, I has not seen. Think of that. Nor the ear heard. Nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for his children that love him. Great. What a beautiful promise that is. When you get down, when you get discouraged, just think of that scripture. We haven't even seen, we haven't even heard the wonderful things he has for us. Yes. Verse three. Mm -hmm. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. No wine. The vessels were empty. They were dry. And my mind immediately went and thought to the lives of men and women without God. How empty and void they feel. Professing Christians trying to worship but without the Holy Spirit. They're dead. They're dry. They may read the scripture. They may talk about God, but there is no spirit there. They work up emotions. And the world may work up many emotions and many times and give temporary happiness, but leave a man's vessel empty at the end of the day. Right. My mind was drawn also to what wine represents in the scripture. Wine, the spirit of God, a new covenant, his laws put in our mind and written in our heart. In Luke 22:20, 20, likewise also, the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Psalms 104.15, wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make the face shine. The Spirit of God. You can tell when a person has the Spirit of God just by the Spirit that they manifest. Uh, once again, 104, Psalms 104, 15, wine that maketh glad the heart of man and oil to make his face to shine. There's nothing, nothing in this world that they can offer that will give you that oil of joy. God's presence within our soul. And can you imagine 
having a big celebration and running out of food or running out of wine. Before Justin. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Jesus wasn't speaking sarcastically to his mother. Uh, during that time, the word woman, as used in Matthew 15:28, John 19:26, and John 20:13, implies tenderness and courtesy and not disrespect. Woman, what have I to do with thee? Was another way of saying, what is that to me and you? Jesus knew the purpose in his coming into the world, what he was facing, and I imagine it laid heavy on his heart and always on his mind. You know, like when you've got something you're facing, a doctor's appointment or uh, something like that, or speaking in front of people, how it just lays heavy on your heart and, and on your mind, and you can't get away from it. And here Jesus had just been baptized, and the Spirit of God had descended upon him in a form of a dove. And don't you know that this was on his mind continually? He knew what he had to do. And did he want to do it? No, he really didn't. He was desiring to be one with the Father again, the scripture tells us, uh, that he wanted to be back with the Father, but he knew the purpose of his coming, and he did not want to do it, but yet he knew that he would do it because he loved you and me, and he wanted us to have that one relationship with him and God. So as this laid heavy on his heart, Jesus even said in John 12, 27, Now my soul is troubled. Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause, I came unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Jesus knew what he was facing. Even at the age of 12, when his parents found him in the temple, in Luke 2, 49, Jesus said to his Parents, wished ye not that I was about my father's business? So at this marriage feast, shortly after his baptism, was this a time also when he was thinking about his purpose in coming? Jesus said to his mother, Mine hour, hour is not yet come. So what is Jesus' hour? Jesus spoke of his hour many times. And we look at other places in the scripture where he spoke of his hour, the hour he was to glorify the Father, John 17, 1. And then in John 7, 30, they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. So they sought to kill him, but it wasn't his time. John 12, 23 and Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Here Jesus foretold his death. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. And in Matthew 26, 18, he told his disciples when he was preparing for the Passover feast, my time is at hand. The ultimate sacrifice was soon to take place. His hour had come. The hour to be glorified and to glorify his father. But leading up to this hour, he is proving who he really is through miracles and parables. And each miracle had a message and a purpose of his appearance the Son of God, who came with power, the power to live within mankind and to change him. Being one with the Father is such a beautiful privilege that we have. And I thank God that we have the opportunity to commune with him, to talk with him, the privilege to live a life free from sin. We don't have to. I'm so thankful for that. Jeremiah 31 
31, Behold the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the covenant that he made with our fathers when he took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. But this new covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law in their inward parts, and I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Fifth verse. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. What do you think of when you hear that? Whatever he says, do it. Those are requirements, aren't they? Oh, the impact of those words. Mary, with her spiritual perception, gave the same advice we as the children of the king adhere to. Whatsoever he saith, do it. This is the true characterization of a true child of God. No guile, no deception, walking in obedience to God. Psalms 15, 1 through 3 says, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. And I think that is the key right there, speaking the truth in his heart. Too many nowadays don't speak the truth in their heart. They're not honest with themselves. They're running from God, and they know what their problem is, and they know God knows what their problem is, but they brush it off because they get praise that they're okay from their friends or from Facebook, and they operate in human wisdom not walking uprightly and not working righteousness nor speaking the truth in their heart. They're not honest about their true condition. John 14, 23, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Abode means to take up residence. Take up residence in our heart, in this vessel, that we are living in, filled with the presence of God. Romans 8, 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Hebrew 5, 9, Jesus, the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. What a wonderful privilege we, his children, have to be one with Jesus and the Father, so his mother said unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. The sixth verse, this is the one that really stirred my curiosity, that got me into really studying, and then the scriptures took me back to the Old Testament, and, and uh, so we'll have Justin read it, the sixth one. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. These weren't any little containers, were they? A firkin is nine gallons, and it said two or three gallons apiece, which is equal to 18 to 20 gallons. And the commentary says this is equal to 1,800 pounds of wine. Can you imagine? And you know what that told me? There's plenty for all. They weren't going to run out. There's plenty for everybody. I began to look at the significance of this, and it just thrilled my soul. <laughs> Why in this verse, in this passage of Scripture, what is the hidden message? Why, not, why didn't Jesus say, fill the empty wine containers, those containers that you got the wine out of, the wine jugs, the skins, the wine skins. Why didn't he say fill those? The ones that they had been pouring from. Why specifically six? Why six purification pots 
used for ceremonial cleansing. Can you imagine drinking from the pots that they had washed their hands from? It would be like over in the dining hall when we're having a big dinner and the girls are waiting on the tables. There's a pitcher of water on the table and another girl going around and cleaning up some uh, places that were empty. And someone would say, hey, I ran out of water here. Will you uh, get me some water, fill my jug of water? And the girl cleaning the table says, oh, I've got some water here, and pours it in your pitcher, and then you drink it. These purification pots were used for ceremonial cleansing. They had to wash their hands in these pots, the water from these pots, before they ate in the Old Testament, before they went into the temple. And I read one time that even the scribes that wrote the word of God, you know how the uh, prophets and the uh, different men of God had maybe somebody else write the scripture for them, what they were saying, before they even did that or transcribed the word of God. They had to go in and wash their hands and go through a cleansing process before they even touched the word of God. And I thought, how important it is for us when we pick up the word of God to study, to read how we need to get down and pray first and ask God to reveal to us what he has for us. And that's when those hidden gems come out that just really thrill your soul and bless you. But here these were these dirty ceremonial pots, the purification pots. They were disgusting. Are there any germophobias here? <laughs> Would you drink out of that? <laughs> but I began to think, why six pots? Six is the number that stands for man. When was man created? On the sixth day. What was he made from? The dust of the earth, the clay. So the six represents earthly, fleshly, full of human weakness, incomplete, imperfect. These purification pots were for the cleansing of the people before they went to sacrifice before God. Zechariah tells us of the hearts of men that would not hear the word of the Lord and how their hearts were made of stone, earthly, hard hearts. So here we have six purification pots. Speaking of the manner of purification under the old law, the Jews, as I told you, could not eat or even approach the altar of sacrifice until they washed from the water in these pots. A ceremonial ritual of cleansing. Mark 7, 3 and 4, but in the new gospel age, now our garments, our hands, our hearts are washed with what? the blood of the lamb, true purification, true perfection, once for all. The old ceremonial law was done away with when Jesus came and a new dispensation, a new kingdom was being set up. Remember, Jesus did not perform any miracles until the gospel was preached. The scripture takes us back to Lamentations 4 and 2 where it says, the precious sons of Zion, comparable to fine gold, how they are esteemed as earthen pitchers, the work, the hands of the potter. We, the earth, earthen vessel made of dust, we are but clay in the potter's hands, if we will be pliable and let him mold us and make us. Jesus takes that piece of clay, fills us with his spirit, and makes us a vessel of honor and glory unto him. Amen. Then my heart was thrilled as the scripture took me back to Genesis 49, 11, where it speaks of Christ as the choice vine and how he would bind his colt unto the choice vine and he washed his garments in wine 
and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk, the riches of the tribe of Judah. Through Christ, our garments are washed in wine, in the blood of the Lamb. Our eyes made alive, open to spiritual light and sight, the teeth white as milk, the young ready to eat. You know, when you're first saved, how you just want to grab everything you can from the Word of God, you just want to eat everything you can and digest it. And you look at a baby's first tooth, whose diet has been nothing but milk. Is it gray, brown? No, it's white and pure. We are washed in the blood, a new babe in Christ. Our appetite is for, the, for God's word. And this was for the old and the young. In Christ alone, we can have the wine and milk, the riches of the tribe of Judah. Verse 7. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. Do you think these servants wondered why they were asked to fill the purification pots with water? Probably not understanding, but what did they do? They did it in obedience. They acted and did as they were told, filling them to the brim. I think they probably went beyond. You know, if you had to fill those pots, where did they get the water from anyway? You know, it, it's not like they went to the spigot and turned it on. Uh, did they have to put the pots on something and carry them somewhere? But these men, however they did it, they filled them to the brim. And I thought how important that is for us when we are told to do something, go beyond. You know, do more than what you expect that maybe you should be doing as far as when somebody tells you to do something. I know when uh, our, our parents raised us, they told us, you know, to go beyond what we're told and do the very best that we can. And the servants, they filled it to the brim. The servants first had to take action and obey. They obeyed what Mary said. Whatever he says, do it. And they did that, and then they filled it to the brim. So there's action on our part to receive the blessing. And oh, the blessings they received once the pots were filled to the brim. They did what was humanly capable, filling the pots with water, but that's all they could do. We can't do anything through the flesh. We can only fill with water. And that's what happened under the old law. They only filled with water. The eighth verse. <clears throat> and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Then they were commanded to draw out and give to the governor. What blessing they and others received when they obeyed. They dipped in, they drew out, and they bare to the governor. What we can, uh, what blessings we receive when we dip into the word of God and read, and then we draw from the spirit, we live by the spirit, and then bear it to others. Our obedience or disobedience now will affect generations to come. Uh, the Romans have testified about that many times. How if their grandfather hadn't yielded to God when he did, where would they be now? And it's the same with my family. If my mom and dad hadn't sought out truth, they were in five different religious organizations, and they just kept seeking something greater and greater. They knew that maybe something that was said by uh, one particular pastor, they'd go home and study it, and it didn't line up with the word of God, so they would seek a place where they felt the word of God was preached and where the spirit of God was. Because in the scripture, when Jesus uh, met the woman at the well, he said, they that worship me 
must worship in spirit and in truth. So it takes both. It takes the spirit of God and it takes the truth of his word also. So Jesus could have just spoken and filled those pots, don't you think? He could have just said, there's wine. Or he could have said, the wineskins are full. Go get the wine. But he didn't. He asked them to do their part. And he required them obedience before he turned the water into wine. And again we read Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everybody that thirsteth, come ye to the water. And he that hath no money, those that are broken and humbled and poor in spirit, poor in heart, come ye, buy, eat, and yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Oh, the delight, obedience and brings into the heart of men and women when we operate under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Eyes made alive, sight given, teeth white as babes in Christ, eager to be fed, the revelation of true life and freedom, no longer in bondage to the flesh. Nine. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom. This governor was totally amazed. He had been aware of the critical situation that they were in. Uh, you can imagine a wedding feast, how everybody's all tense and nervous and so much to be done anyway, and then to run out of wine for the guests. What a terrible thing to happen. Maybe he had watered it down to make it last as long as he could. He was in charge of the event, but you know who Mary took her problem to? Not the governor of the feast. She took the problem to the one who had the power, the very creator of all. She knew not what the Son of God was about to do, but she believed in him. She knew where to take the problem. She had faith and trust. Right. And when the governor had found the source of this delicious wine, verse 10 says, And said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The good wine. The new wine. Jesus is on the scene. The new gospel day, the new dispensation, the Messiah has come, the source of true joy and peace yes. for the Jews and the Gentiles. Oh, hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long has craved. <laughs> he taketh away the first that he may establish the second. That's what Hebrew 10.9 says. He taketh away the first, the old law, the old covenant, that he may establish the second. Thank God for that. First the Mosaic law, Moses' law. Now the law written in the heart of men and women. The best for last. Thank God we live in this day and age. Thank God the old ceremonial law was done away with. The ultimate sacrifice, the last sacrifice that had to take place, what the old law could not do, was now made available through the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Thou hast kept the good wine till now. New wine is from grapes that have been through a recent process of crushing. And in Hebrew, the word translate new wine means freshly pressed, squeezed, expelled, trodden out. And my mind went to Jesus. How they crushed our Savior. How they abused him. How they crucified him. But out of the grave he came. Harvest time and brought unto mankind a new wine and the infilling of the Holy Spirit to live a life victorious over sin. The ultimate representation of the new wine 
was revealed as he took the Passover cup of wine, the fruit of the vine in his hand. Luke 22, 20, likewise he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Thank God, Jesus is the source of that new wine. Jesus did away with the old sacrifice and became that new living sacrifice that mankind could live holy before God, the best for last. Psalms 34, 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. The servants that drew the water knew. They knew where it came from. God's children know the source of their joy also. Shiloh has come, the best for last, now baptized with the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. Acts eleven sixteen, John baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, that infilling of the Holy Spirit within our heart, his temple, the vessel of clay, that he now makes a vessel of honor. So thankful that we are partakers of that new wine. Acts 2.17, Jesus said in the last days, he would pour out his spirit upon his servants. The servants know the source of the wine. Thank God. Many today have not had their earthen vessels filled with good new wine that Jesus provides. They have not been joined in marriage to the Lamb of God. They are trying to humanly operate out of the vessels of clay, those contaminated clay pots, and are not filled with the Spirit of God. They thrive on human wisdom instead of waiting for God to move. Their salvation is based on works of righteousness, going about doing good works and quoting scriptures. But the scripture tells us our works are as filthy rags. If our fruit is not love, joy, peace, and one I think gets overlooked many times, long-suffering, as spoken in Galatians 5, we need our vessels purified. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Christ our Savior. Isaiah 64, 6, the sacrifice of blood and bulls and goats could never suffice. But thank God the ultimate sacrifice was given. And we, the church, have been joined in marriage to the bridegroom. Jesus Christ, we the church, are his bride, the beautiful church of God, all redeemed, all the holy people set apart from the world. And it bears repeating again, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, I hath not seen nor heard, neither have entered the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. The third, the good things God has for his people, when we obey, stay close to him in that intimate relationship, operating under the guidance and supply of the word and the spirit. When we dip into the word of God and draw out, we bear that good fruit and we can bear it to others. The daily guidance of the Holy Spirit can save us much heartache. If we ask God's guidance before we even make a move about anything, it spares us so much heartache. I know a lot of major things in our life, you know, in our marriage, I have prayed about and asked God to show us what to do, the right thing to do, and God has blessed us over and over again. Uh, that goes with anything that we do. We ask for God's guidance. I know lots of times I get up and I'll say, Lord, what would you have me to do today? I know that I've got a lot of work out in the shop, but Lord, is there, do you want me to do something else? 
And God will speak to us many times, uh, even making a phone call to somebody, sending a card. All those things are encouragement. And if we are led by the Spirit of God, pray over those cards before you send them. They can bring joy. Uh, it's just amazing what the Spirit of God can do in our lives when we live by his guidance and holyship, by the holy uh, presence of his spirit dwelling within. As the angel showed Zechariah in the fourth chapter that the oil supplied to the seven lamps of the golden candlestick were from two olive trees, one on the right and the other on the left. In Zechariah 4.12, Zechariah asked, what be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves. And the angel said, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. When we operate and are supplied by the anointed one, by the word and the spirit, we will shine and have positive results, giving glory back to God. And what we have said or done will bear that good fruit and be a light to the world and will bring glory back to God. That is how God expects his people to live, operating underneath his guidance and Holy Spirit, his ways. But I'm afraid the danger that we have nowadays, especially some of us that would have been raised in the church and have known God for years, it has been become too common to us. The scriptures we read, they don't you know, bring the joy that they should sometimes. And we have been so blessed with God's presence in this congregation and others. But too many times, if we're not careful, we will go and try to do things without really seeking the spirit and the guidance of God. We make decisions without God's approval, and wonder why things are not going good or that we're feeling empty inside. When we lay down at the end of the day, if we haven't sought God's guidance, that infilling of the Spirit, we feel empty inside. But if we obey the Word of God as we dip in and draw out that precious living water operating underneath the guidance of the Holy Spirit of Christ that dwells within we can have the peace and joy that only he can give. Our actions and words will bear positive results. That's how we know if we are in the will of God. Is it giving glory back to God? Do we have positive results from what we have done? And there's nothing comparable to his word and spirit dwelling within. We find this is true living. That's the only way to live, the best way to live. Those precious times, those times of floodgates open and tears of joy flow down my face. There's nothing like the presence of God. Others may jump, run the aisles, clap their hands, raise their hanky, whatever. Whatever your way of expressing your joy, do it. Give glory back to God. David said in Psalms 27:4, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, dwelling in his presence daily, not in this physical building, but dwell in his presence daily, dipping in and drawing out to others. David went into the tabernacle seeking the presence of God, we can fall upon our knees in our prayer room and God's presence meets us there. What a privilege we have. When we partake of the living water, dip in and draw out the new wine, the spirit of God that makes the blind eyes to see and the face to shine and joy in our heart, we are guided by his spirit unto all righteousness, purity, and love. An illustration I gave years ago tied to the children's song, God's love is like a circle. A circle big and round, 
And when you see a circle, no ending can be found. And so the love of Jesus goes on eternally, forever and forever. I know that he loves me. I had taken the kids out in the back, and I had a big rope and made a big circle, told them all to get into it. And I told them that was how the love of God is, in that circle. And Jesus is in the center of that circle. And the closer we stay to the center of that circle, we're not going to be drawn away by the snare of the fowler. If we get too close to the edge, get away from the presence of God, then we look, begin to look into the things of the world. Well, they look like they're having a better time over there. They're, they're doing this and that, and they seem to be getting by with it. Why can't I do that? Well, let's, let's just go do this. And, and then before long, you get so close, the ones on the outside pull you out. And that's when you're in danger. You get out of that presence of God. Get away from his yielding spirit. And that's when the snare of the fowler can get you. The key is to daily keep that intimate relationship with God. That intimate relationship will cause us to operate, speak kind to one another, to live holy, to have our face shine, the presence of God about us, the failure to study the word of God, to get in his presence, will cause our eyes to become dim. Our sight will be drawn away to the other things, and we'll begin to operate in human pride and human wisdom and be snatched away so easily. We have to be reminded of this every day. It's not just something we do one time. But we have to be reminded every day that we're human and ask God to come in and fill this vessel with his wisdom and his strength. God wants us to rely upon him and all the beautiful things he has for us when we rely upon him and his spirit. Three points. Number one, as Mary, take your burdens to the Lord. Wait on him. In Psalms 46, 10, it says, Be still and know that I am God. For what purpose is this? We often forget the rest of that scripture which says, I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. It's not for our purpose, for our will, but for his will. Amen. For his glorification, not ours. Acknowledge our inability and exalt and glorify God. Number two, as the servants went and obeyed and filled to the brim, we must walk in obedience to the Holy Spirit and his word. We can't act out on our emotion or how we feel, but we have to humbly acknowledge his wisdom, his ways are so far above ours. Romans 8, 14, for as many are that are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So dig into the promises of God's holy word in faith and fear not. Number three, draw out with joy and great expectation. Draw from his word. Look for those hidden nuggets in his word and then wait upon God to reveal his answers to you, and then bear the gospel to others. Glorify God in all things. The word of the Lord came to Abraham, saying in Genesis 15, 1, I am thy shield. Not only I am your shield, Abraham, but I am your exceeding great reward. Isn't that beautiful? John 2, 11. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Canaan of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. It was for his glory, for his edification. Two more scriptures. 
For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that excellency of the power, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. The excellency of the power, the power by which we operate, our daily lives, our words, our actions, how we interact with others, where we go, may be of God and not of us. It is not in our human wisdom, but through God's Holy Spirit that we should be operating and making decisions to bring glory back to him. The best was saved for last. What a privilege we have to go to the Father, to be led by the Holy Spirit of God. And I pray God will give us discernment as we draw up closer to him, as we dig deeper into the word of God, be patient, wait for his guidance, deny self, pride, and rely completely upon Jesus. With the Holy Spirit dwelling within, our actions and decisions will bring greater unity, positive results in building the kingdom of God, and give God the glory and honor he deserves. My desire is to draw closer to God daily, to dwell in his presence, and to daily dip in, draw out, and bear to others. Thank you for your patience and listening. <laughs>